0: Before I begin a little bit of housekeeping, Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Uh, I'm Ed Adcock, and my wife and I, Rosemarie, we've been attending here for uh, not quite a year. We've been attending here since January, and uh, my wife and I run a missions organization, which she founded uh, using fine art and music for... uh, Community outreach for gospel proclamation and for humanitarian relief uh, across the world and uh, we've really been uh, excited about attending here and, and getting to know uh, this church family and seeing uh, the love of God and the love of Christ uh, in this uh, community of faith so thank you for having us this morning and uh, Uh, We are going to cover uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, that's uh, page 1,285, okay? Uh, I will be reading from the New American Standard, uh, but they're very close. The English translations are, are very similar, so you should be able to follow along. Um, And those of you that are online, uh, uh, open to whatever English translation that you have. uh, But we are going to cover uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. And give a little bit of context with this. The author of Hebrews is writing to this community of faith of which uh, he is also part of. And this community of faith has been through some trials and some tribulations. Some of them have faced the hardships of losing their property and being kicked out of the synagogues for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they were going through some hard times. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them not to give up not to lose heart, not to lose faith, not to turn back, but to endure these hardships and to focus their life and their faith on Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to cover this morning. So as we uh, look into the scriptures to see what was written for the encouragement of their, their faith, it is also an encouragement for our faith today. So if you're able please stand with me while we honor God's word and the reading of God's word while I read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. Against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you, with your Holy Spirit, would grant to us a clear understanding of your word this morning, and that we, in response, would live out our faith in ways that are pleasing to you. All this we ask through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 1974, I was a young teenager. And my grandmother, who was uh, married to my step-grandfather at the time, uh, they were uh, tent evangelists, and they would travel the world preaching the gospel. And that year, uh, my grandmother wanted me to come along with, and it was a, uh, a struggle for our family to come up with the funds to do that, but they did that. They made that sacrifice, so I got to go with them. As a young teenager, we traveled into continental Europe and then made the trip over to England, and then over into Scandinavia, into uh, Norway and Sweden. And we had uh, a tent that was about as big as this sanctuary. And every town that we went to, my step-grandfather would uh, play guitar and I would play guitar along with him uh, during the worship service and then he would preach the gospel. And we got a call while we were in Sweden to go to Helsinki, Finland. And so we packed up and went to Helsinki, Finland. And we had a tent revival there also. During the series of those meetings, my grandparents were contacted by uh, a secret cell group that were trying to smuggle Bibles into the communist bloc countries at that time of Poland and East Germany. We didn't know who our contacts were. We were just given a place to pick up a suitcase, a trick suitcase of uh, Bibles. And in this trick suitcase, there was a, uh, a false cover. We could put our clothes and everything on top of that cover to make it look like a real suitcase. But underneath, there were Bibles that were going to go to an underground church in East Germany. Again, at that time, uh, the communist Soviet bloc countries, uh, the government was definitely anti-American, but uh, also anti-Christian. And so there were churches, underground churches in these areas that were needing to have these Bibles and, and we didn't know who gave them to us. We didn't know where we were going to drop them off. We were giving, given spots to do that uh, through this communication. So we made the trip from Helsinki, Finland, took a boat with our car and we landed in Gdansk, Poland. And through Poland we went drove through Poland and crossed the border. As we were getting to the border of East Germany, about a mile or so before the border, you could see the minefield with the razor wire that was uh, rolled, coiled up. And then we came up to the tower at the border, which was a machine gun tower. And there was an armed guard there calling us to halt, to stop. And so they moved their uh, mirrors on wheels underneath our car. They had us open up our trunk and take out all of our suitcases. And they inspected all of our suitcases. And this guard, as he was going through these suitcases, he discovered our trick suitcase We were hoping that uh, he wouldn't find what was underneath all those clothes, but he did. And you could feel the tension of the three of us, my step-grandfather and my grandmother. My grandmother whispered a prayer underneath her breath, Jesus, please help us. We knew that uh, they didn't like Americans and they definitely didn't like Christians. But something strange happened That guard looked around to see if his superior officer was watching and saw that he wasn't. He took one of the Bibles and took it and put it underneath the flap of his uniform and hid it. And I, as a young teenager, I could see the look in that guard's eyes, the hunger for God. He then told us we could pack up our things and we could go on. And so we were able to make that delivery uh, across the border to that underground church that was waiting for Bibles. Now, where do we get faith like that? Faith that is able to endure hardships and in, in, in this case, Uh, opposition to the Christian faith in a very hostile environment? What type of faith does it take for a grandmother to allow her grandson to be subject, possibly subject to the anger of a hostile government for your faith, for her faith? Maybe not necessarily her, her grandson's faith. Where does that come from? Despite all of the opposition from governments and hostilities from people that are not Christians, we find that that faith comes in our text from Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That is where our faith in Christ comes from. Not only is he the one that authored what we are to believe, but he is also the object of whom we're to believe in. He is the author of our faith. So, in the light of that, in the light of uh, his authorship of our faith, how do we respond to that? Well, our text this morning gives us uh, four answers. And uh, I'm going to try to do this within the amount of time that I'm given. Um, Really, um, you could go on for years talking about just these three verses. But uh, here are four things that I wanna quickly cover. One, we live faithfully by learning from people who have faith. Two, we learn to live faithfully by putting away distractions and the persisting, clinging sins. We live faithfully by enduring the hostility of others towards Jesus. And fourthly, we live faithfully by trusting Jesus who created our faith to complete our faith. So, first up, we live faithfully by learning from people who have faith. Well, who are these people that have faith? The author of this passage just got finished writing in chapter 11, all of the heroes of the faith that he was uh, trying to encourage this community of believers in. Some of them were facing extreme hardships because of a loss of a spouse and the economic um, condition of the loss of that spouse. And, and it was difficult for them to carry on. But God met their needs. Others faced hostility from their family. We remember uh, Abel, who was, uh, faced the full brunt of his brother Cain's hatred. Widows who had an only son, die on them and was resurrected by, from uh, the ministry of the prophet. And so all of these in the uh, sort of encapsulated as an abridged Reader's Digest version of the whole of the Old Testament, all of the stories of the people who had faith in God during their difficult times and saw how God met their needs in that difficulty That God is faithful. He's good and he's faithful. He's reminding these people and also us today that God is faithful to keep his promises. And we can learn how people operate in their faith of God to understand how we can also have faith in that same God. that He is faithful and just to meet us in our needs when we need him. So we learn from people who have faith that were before us, this great cloud of witnesses. Now, the imagery that the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that we have this great cloud of witnesses as, as if spectators of a big Colosseum watching the, uh, the Greek games, the races. But the... Uh, There is a slight difference though for this great cloud of witnesses and being just a passive spectator in the game. Spiritually for us, for Christians, these witnesses, these great cloud of witnesses are not passive. They each have their own faith story. They each have their own failures and they each have their own faith in God to where God met their needs forgave their sins, and set them back on the path of faith and promised them that one day things would be made right again. And they lived that. And so each one of those witnesses is like a courtroom testimony that says, I had this happen to me. And where this happened to me, God was faithful in my situation. And he can be faithful in your situation also. That is our great cloud of witnesses. And so we learn by the people that have faith before us. I learned from my grandmother. She's she's been uh, passed on and with the Lord now for over 30 years. But I still think of her uh, almost every day and her faith story, the trials that she faced when she was a young pastor's wife and her husband, the pastor of a small church in California, passed away at a very young age and she was widowed. She kept her faith. She was a missionary to uh, Central America and married this evangelist and continued to proclaim the faithfulness of Jesus Christ throughout her lifetime. And she was always an encouragement to my faith, how She was able to follow Jesus with love, with everything that she had, no matter what her life situation was. So not only do we have these great clouds of witnesses, we are learning from the people that passed before us. We're learning from the heroes of faith, from the word of God. But we also, according to our text, learn from, how to live faithfully by people around us who also have faith. Look again at verses one and two. And notice the writer is speaking within this community of believers. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance uh, with the race that is set before us. See, he's speaking within a context of a current community of faith. Not only do you learn from the heroes of the past, but you learn from also the community of faith that is around you. When you see people facing hardships in your community and saying, yes, I'm going through this hardship, but Jesus is faithful and he's meeting my needs and he's providing for me. And I love Jesus still to this day. And I know that one day things will be made right because God is good. And in him, there is no darkness at all. You see, we're not meant to, to live a life of faith alone. When Jesus spoke about the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go find the one that was lost, the implication is is that it was not intended for that one to be separate from the 99. Together, we are a family of faith. When one hurts, all of us hurt and we are to encourage each person in our community of faith with the same faith that God has encouraged us with. So the writer in Hebrews also knows this and he tells them in chapter 10, he says, "'Let us hold fast to the confession of hope "'without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. "'And let us consider how to stir up one another "'to love and good works.'" not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our faith is not meant to be kept private or secret, no matter what our society and culture around us tells us. You know, Keep your faith at home, it's a private thing. That's a lie. Our faith is meant to be beneficial And the fruit of that faith helps each other in their faith and it also proclaims the goodness of God in the community that's around our church. And it's a growing hostility of our culture towards the things of God that makes it even more important to this day for us to live out our faith outside of this church. Our faith is not just a Sunday go to meeting in church. Our faith is to be using the fruits of the Spirit that God has given us to help others out in this community that speaks of the goodness of God so that if possible, they can also glorify their Father in heaven who is the giver of good gifts and they could also be called to faith in Jesus Christ. See, it's not good works just for the sake of good works. It's not just random acts of kindness, which Christians are to be purposeful in their good works. And that purpose is to speak to others the goodness of God and the opportunity for them to have the same faith and the same rescue, the same gospel, that you yourself experienced. So we live faithfully by learning how other people of faith before us and around us live faithfully to God. That's one. Not only do we learn uh, to live faithfully by people around us, by people who have faith, but we also live faithfully by putting away distractions and persistent sin. So why do we put away distractions? What is a distraction? We put away distractions because they dull our focus. These distractions may or may not be sin in and of themselves. So we as human beings have desires and those desires can be for security, financial security. Uh, <clears throat> it can be for uh, security within our household, within our homes, within our jobs. But if we have uh, undue attention and focus on that, that takes our attention away from Jesus. Jesus. They dull our focus in our faith. And they can become sins even though they're not sins in and of themselves. We know the persistent sins that we have that are actual sins that God has spoken about that are sins in the Word of God. The Ten Commandments where, you know, we're not supposed to steal. We're not supposed to commit adultery. Those are sins in and of themselves. But sitting down and watching a a football game necessarily is not a sin. It can be a distraction. And if it becomes too much of a distraction, uh, then we need to be careful of starting to lead an undisciplined life because our focus needs to be on what we are doing right now, right here as a community of faith and a witness to our community. So, when I was in the Navy, I I, um, did some boxing when I was in the Navy. And it was an amateur thing, uh, not even really official, but our our base was putting this uh, Olympics together, and I was one of the boxers. And we had uh, three rounds to go through, three, three minute rounds. And I remember training in the gym every day. We would train for at least an hour for each of those three minute rounds. Buffering our bodies, building up strength, building up endurance, losing that excess weight, which I gained back. I think it was those donuts out there, but uh, those are distractions for me. But you had to lead a disciplined lifestyle. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. That disciplined life is, is there so that you can run with endurance that whole life of faith that is set in front of you. See, this is not just a, uh, a very short uh, sprint from, you know, for like a 50 yard and 100 yard sprint. This is a long distance life race for Christians. And so the analogies is always uh, in this the analogies for the athletes that focus their discipline to make sure that they are exercised and disciplined in their, in their diets and in the way that they think, the way that they focus that they can complete that race and win the prize. And so that is also with our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is a long distance race of which we need endurance. This endurance race that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is one that endures hardships. Now that word endurance is very interesting in the scriptures, the word endurance for this race. And the word race is very interesting also um, in, the, in the Greek language. The Greek language uh, calls the race the agona. And that was the, the Greek races back then with the Colosseums and, and, and the athletes that would grapple and struggle in, in the boxing and also in the, in the sprint long distance races and the wrestling. It's where we get the word agony from. <laughs> Athletes do have a lot of agony. Uh, which, uh, But uh, that agony, or that struggle is there specifically for a focused goal of winning that prize. And they practice and, and exercise and discipline themselves so that they can endure. And that endurance... Is not something that they're just, you know, a weight or burden that's on them and they're just, oh, I'll I'll endure this to the end. That's not the way that the Greeks understood endurance. That's not the way that the writer of Hebrews or the Word of God uh, explains endurance. Endurance is a... experiencing a, a weight, a burden, but that Uh, is a long distance carrying of that burden with a focus towards the hope, a focused hope that they will reach the prescribed goal of that race. So our faith, our goal is Jesus Christ. And we have that, we can endure these things in life because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's a faithful, it's a hopeful expectation of a good, a good outcome of what God has promised. That's what endurance is. So we put away distractions that dull our focus. We also put away sin because it disqualifies our witness. Now, yes, uh, sin displeases God, sin goes against His law. The things that we do that we ought not do as prescribed by the Word of God. Also the things that we do not do that we should have, again, prescribed by the Word of God. But what I wanna talk about here and what I think the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the sin in our lives has a a potential of disqualifying our witness. And that's what I want to focus on. That persistent sin, that you know, that thing that you always keep going back to. It feels good. You get some pleasure out of it. It's a temporary thing but you keep going back to it, it keeps clinging to you. It's exactly like a football tackler who will grab the legs of the runner of the football and hold on so tight that that runner cannot progress towards the goal. That thing that clings to you or entangles you up, that has the ability to disqualify you in your witness to the goodness of God. So what is that sin? Notice that the writer of Hebrews in this uh, did not say a particular sin. He just says, put down or put aside, lay down the sin that so easily entangles you. You know what that is? He doesn't have to be specific about it. You and your heart know between you and God what that sin is. And it may be sins. You know, stealing. If one steals, how does that affect your witness? Well, when you steal, you are telling telling the world and the community around you that you don't trust God to be your provider, that you have to grab onto things yourself. When you lie, what you're doing is you're saying that God is not in charge of your status, your ability to make yourself look better to others, or your ability to hide uh, so that you look better in in your standing in your community you're not trusting God who is sovereign over your stature in this life. For husbands who are not faithful to their wives, abusive to their wives, what does that say to your witness? Well, it says that in this symbolism, that in your unfaithfulness to your wife, that Christ is not faithful and is not uh, loving to the church. That's what that symbolizes. And that's right out of uh, Paul's letters to the Ephesians. See, everything that we do with this sin or whatever sin it is, it speaks volumes as your witness about God. And the writer of Hebrews in this passage is very concerned about the great cloud of witnesses and how your witness also testifies to the goodness and to the character of God. And those sins are giving a testimony, but it's a false one. It's giving a testimony about God that is false, And so the writer of Hebrews is very interested in communicating that to this congregation, that your sins have the effect of uh, besmirching the character of God and it also disqualifies your witness. See, I remember uh, back in the 90s, there was this very famous uh, television evangelist that got caught in a big public way of a particular type of vice. And it was made public. And for months and months after that, the media and uh, everybody at, at school, everybody at the jobs, they were doing everybody, the comedy shows and the music that was being produced was all talking about this one televangelist that he's, really, he's not really a Christian, he's a fake. See, what happens when your sin becomes public, it discourages the faith of those that are around you. People were giving to this ministry. And when they found out about this evangelist's sin, their faith was disheartened. They trusted in this minister. And not only that, it also gave courage to the unbelievers to continue in their unbelief and to blaspheme God. So it makes it harder for your persistent sin to be a faithful witness to those that are around you, which is one of the reasons why Paul wrote in Romans chapter two, verses 21 through 24. He says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So again, Christians, those who hold to the steadfast faith in God and proclaim his goodness and, there, and the community's need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of that gets washed away. People won't listen to it because of that persistent sin that disqualifies your testimony. When Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of your persistent sin, Two important things happened at that point. When he was uh, restoring your relationship to God, one of those things was this, those sins were actually and permanently forgiven. When Jesus Christ died on that cross and said, it is finished, your sins were actually and permanently forgiven and God promised that says that in his word, he says, your sins I will remember no more. Now that doesn't mean that God is forgetful. It means that he will not hold them against you anymore. Two, not only were they forgiven, but now you have the power to put away those sins. Your sin, your, the power of sin against you has been defeated. So not only do we learn from people who have faith, not only do we put away those sins that distract us and keep us from a, a faithful witness, but we live faithfully by enduring the hostility of others towards Jesus. And the way that we do that is remember that his endurance of that hostility that hostility against his physical body was temporary. And because he was here only for 33 years, from the day of his birth to the day of his crucifixion, that whole life, if you study the life of Christ, was one of very uh, much hardships, of hostilities forced against him. But, he did say at that at the end, that it is finished. So those hostilities are temporary. Our hardships also are temporary. We need to take a look at the eternal purposes of what those hardships are for our faith. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep this in mind, that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But those persecutions are temporary. All over the world, people are facing persecutions for their faith. And we see this in the news every day. But there will be one day that God will make things right. He will stop the whole thing and he will say enough is enough. At that point, he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that passed away, our suffering is only temporary. And just as that is temporary, his reward is eternal. And so we keep our eyes focused on that because his reward and because of what he's done for us, our reward also is eternal. So keeping that eternal perspective on life also helps us to endure the hardships. And finally, we live faithfully by trusting Jesus who created our faith to complete our faith. When the scriptures say, turn your eyes or fix your eyes or look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that looking at Jesus in in the Greek is an action word, that you are turning your eyes away from all the distractions in this world and you're focusing on the goal of Jesus Christ. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. What he has created, he will complete. Not only did Jesus set the starting line of our faith, but he also positioned the finish line of our faith. He is aware of all the obstacles that we face. And we continue to trust in the goodness of Christ who declared that it is finished, that there is an eternal purpose for our struggle. And Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So we learn from those around us. And the goal is always focused on the faith, of our faith to Jesus Christ. To endure those hardships, to endure those things that when we face at the job or in the schools, in this culture, to face the increasing uh, uh, obstacles to declaring our faith. Jesus Christ, the author of our faith, also completes our faith and will bring us one day to the completion of bringing us into glory with the Father. That's what his goal was when he faced his hardships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the goal set before him to bring his people glorified into an eternal blessed relationship with you, that he set before him aside all of the temptations and distractions of this world with a focused goal to leading a life that was pleasing to you, Father. And in so doing, provided a way for us to one day be glorified. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that is provided through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we give you honor and glory that is only yours because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, for us. Focus our minds to understand the depth of your love and the call that you have on our lives. Soften our hearts that we would be quick to do those things that you have called us to do in our community. And give us the strength to accomplish those things that you have called us to do. For it is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our goal of faith, to emulate and to follow and to be with. So we give you much thanks for this, our Lord. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.